watchers in the fourth dimension. I'm afraid I'm a very unwilling adventurer. Don't you ever think he deserves something to happen to him? I tell you, the Daleks are brilliant people. I think we ought to cooperate with them. Hello, and welcome to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Joy. And I'm Riley, and I believe the Rangerscopes are recording great activity amongst the Thal people. Welcome back to those of us who joined us for the first episode, and welcome to our new listeners. If you want to go and hear what we all had to say about an unearthly child, I suggest you go and listen to our first episode. Otherwise, stay tuned for the Daleks. So, we're on to the second story. There have been some interesting things happening around the world in 1964. The Cold War is heating up. We've seen nuclear proliferation. Israel getting its first nuclear reactor during the broadcast of this story. Canada gets nuclear weapons. China also starts producing enriched uranium. So we're really starting to see world powers become nuclear powers. The Cold War is deepening. And that is the background on which we see this story happen. That actually explains a lot. Yeah, that, that, I think what's really interesting about this, and I'm sure we'll delve into it during the episode discussion, but I think this is happening on a background of nuclear proliferation, but equally with the memories of the horrors of the Second World War. So there's somewhat of a mixed message in this story. I think you're dead on about that. I got that was like, I've, I got more of that. Like the first episode, definitely I could feel like the sense of worries about an atomic age, but most of it is absolutely about World War II. I think one other historical event that's worthy of note, especially given some of our conversations last week, is the day before the broadcast of the final episode, Jeff Hanneman, who would go on to become one of the two guitarists in Slayer, was born. <laughs> it all comes together. It does. We all know Susan's love of Slayer. Behind the scenes on this, we, we see the first appearance of Terry Nation, who, of course, is now best known as, unsurprisingly, the creator of the Daleks. He was also known um, previously to this for having written three episodes of the anthology show Out of This World, which had actually been commissioned for ABC by Sidney Newman. I think the Nation of Terry sounds like it should be next to the Nation of Chad and perhaps Dave. <laughs> Here we also see the first appearances of two directors, Christopher Barry, who uh, directed episodes one and two and four and five, and Richard Martin, who directed episodes three, six and seven. We will see more from both of them as we go along our run. Now, I had heard, now I don't know if this is true because I did not have a, a time to back up the claim, but I read somewhere that Ridley Scott was possibly a person that was going to direct one of these episodes. He wasn't going to direct. He was originally slated to design the Daleks, but he had oh. a scheduling conflict, and so the job went to Raymond Cusick. Hmm. Well, Raymond did a great job. Yes, he did. I'm imagining a Ridley-esque take on the Daleks. I realized that the alien in Alien was designed by H.R. Geiger, but since I unavoidably associate that with Ridley Scott, I'm imagining a Geiger-esque take on the Daleks, and it's quite horrific. <laughs> this week, our brief summary is going to be led by Riley. Riley, in your time. The Daleks. Here's our summary. Two school teachers, a high school student, and her grandfather stumble upon an unfamiliar planet where they stick their noses in a foreign conflict where they have no business in. Their interference causes one of the two warring factions to apparently die out when all they were looking for was just room to breathe. Well done. Well done. Oh my gosh. That, that was perfect. <laughs> I have to say that this, this is the beginning 
like I said, my experience of already seeing all the first Doctor, this is truly the beginning of my love of just the dreamlike set design that they give to first Doctor stories. Just the petrified forest and the metal animals. That's just really good looking for back then. I really love that. I really like the corridors in the Dalek City because they really reminded me of German, you know, expressionist type film. Or how about just just the model work of the the of the Dalek City from afar? I thought just like the the design of it was great, and the little first person moving through the forest shot. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was great. I'd say I agree that it looks great, but it really seems impractical for the Daleks themselves to actually navigate. I would feel like they need a little bit more openness because. They, they don't move very easily through tight corners. Well, at least they had, you know, lifts instead of having, you know, stairs. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of a planet, the bumper cars type situation, the way they roll around. <laughs> One thing I think that's pretty impressive with the shot of the city from afar is, in retrospect, I, I know for a fact that it was made out of things like washing up liquid, or, or as you guys in America would say, dish soap bottles and, and things like that, toilet roll holders just general household bric-a-brac and yet when put into black and white it looks really impressive and genuinely like you're seeing an alien city from afar i'm sure it was even more impressive at the time because their television screens weren't you know the high resolution things we have now so when you imagine it through that slightly you know foggier viewpoint it's even it, it works yeah i think going back to what we said last week the resolution on the tvs at the time was less than 500 lines i think about 425 it was very far away from what we have today going back to the petrified forest that looks stunning yeah that's that looks like i said that looks great that looks like just you you could really like i said in a, in a dream state you can feel like you know if you dreamt of like a place like that that's what it would look like in your mind you could feel yourself walking through it there's that beautiful opening shot where it, it's recorded in the negative. I don't know if anyone else noticed that, but that initial establishing shot of the, of the forest, really giving this impression that it's been petrified and everything's a little screwed up by the nuclear explosion. We join our heroes after they left off at the end of the last serial. I do appreciate that they finally got themselves a meal through the TARDIS food machine. Which they explained in elaborate detail exactly how it worked. Well, I mean, it was confusing, I guess, back then to explain in the science fiction concept of, well, here you go. Here's your bacon and eggs in the form of what looks to be like a pat of butter. I just find it interesting because today... They don't even bother to try and explain the TARDIS. It is literally a magic box. If they need it to do something, it can just do it. But at this point, and you see that with lots of things in this story, they want to explain things. The food machine, it works like this. They're very detailed. Oh, we've got a fluid link and it requires mercury. I was wondering if that's a combination of dealing with a television audience that was inexperienced with sci-fi as a whole and also combined with the fact that what was the mission of the show to begin with it's a children's show so they're trying to explain these things to children and that's why it does seem a little busy with the exposition of those things you know i i love the food machine it really almost reminds me of the three-course meal gum in charlie and the chocolate factory i was thinking the exact same thing i wrote down like willy wonka all the way <laughs> which interestingly enough the original book publication of charlie and the chocolate factory came out during the broadcast of this story around about episode five or six so it was contemporaneous if i recall what happens is they go out 
They see the city from a distance. The doctor insists they go see it. Everyone says, heck no. They go back to the TARDIS. Susan freaks out. As she does sometimes. Um, and she's convinced someone touched her. And uh, I thought that sounds really wrong in <laughs> modern times and the, the light of the Me Too movement. Then they're back in the TARDIS. Barbara's sent in to reassure her. And Barbara has a headache. And the doctor's concern seems a little insincere. But that seems to be an early sign of radiation sickness. And I actually somehow completely missed it. <laughs> I thought they did a very good job of that, of giving symptoms to everyone that slowly built up. Oh, I thought that was very good. It built a suspense instead of just doing what would happen so often in a show about exploring a strange new place. Like, oh, it's kind of spooky. It's kind of weird. There's like a building suspense is that the audience knows that they're in danger and they can see them getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Yeah, what, what I found interesting was I was watching it wondering, they've got very early signs of radiation sickness at this point. And obviously the viewer has seen that initial radiation meter at the very beginning of the episode flip into danger. And I was wondering how much would people actually know about radiation sickness at the time? And would they, in the light of the Cold War, be connecting the symptoms with the Geiger counter in the TARDIS? I was actually looking this up and found that in 1963, the British government published a pamphlet called Advising the Householder on Protection Against Nuclear Attack, which was the, the predecessor to what would become the Protect and Survive broadcasts of the 1970s. I think that the public, in the light of the Cold War, might have been quite familiar with these symptoms and, and have cottoned on pretty easily. Oh my gosh, they're suffering from radiation poisoning. In America, we got duck and cover, which you'll have to admit is a lot catchier. And has a cute little turtle that would, uh, with a little you know, military helmet on that would explain it to you. And a song. That's right. <laughs> and if anyone's curious for something complete tangent, but there is a great band called Duck and Cover who sound like a punk version of the Rolling Stones. Check them out. I think I kind of glossed over some of those initial symptoms because I had a lot of other concerns. Is it about Susan? Tell me it's about Susan. Oh, it's always about Susan. It's always about Susan. I'm so worried about Susan. I have decided that after last episode, I held back a little bit. <laughs> I am not going to do that anymore. And so my first comment that I have in my notes is not holding back now. Susan was just, she just screams all the time. She panics. And a lot of times she doesn't add too much to the story. What I feel like they've been doing is they have her have her freak out moments. They give her one, maybe two moments of Susan did something clever. And then she goes back to being a little useless again. I think the writers are trying to be like, oh, no, we're doing great things for women. Look at this little thing that they did. But uh, no. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the part of the problem is, is that when you look at for the guys that, you know, Susan is not a human being, she's. A time lord. Or a panic monkey. <laughs> <laughs> she, sh she should have experience or she should have like some sort of capability of handling these things more than just a person who's had a very limited experience. But the thing is, she's not a time lord yet. There are no such things as time lords yet. Good point. The problem with Susan is, Susan isn't a character. Susan is a plot contrivance that they needed to get Barbara and Ian to the TARDIS. You can tell they have no idea what to do with her. Or she's also a, a, a childlike character for the audience to connect with. I wish they would write her more like that, though. They don't. She's just, ah, I'm panicking. Yeah. I don't know if any of you guys watch Family Guy, but this almost reminds me of an interview I, I remember reading around Family Guy where uh, Seth MacFarlane openly said, we didn't really know how to write a teenage girl, so we just made Meg kind of useless <laughs> and annoying. 
<laughs> and I really feel like that's what they've done with Susan here. They just don't know how to write a teenager. Yeah. I could just imagine like a bunch of people, like, you know, a, a script writing room, just all together smoking cigarettes, like, I don't know. My daughter was crazy the other day. I know she was screaming about something. I don't know. Yeah, put that in there. That Yeah, that's all we know. It was nice, though, that there was that nice little interaction between Barbara and Susan, which was nice because, one, you had two women on screen just by themselves. I wouldn't quite go down going into the whole Bechdel test or anything like that, but that was just nice that they had that little moment. I think that the Bechdel test, I'm probably mispronouncing that because British. But I, I think that's very relevant as we walk through classic Doctor Who. I would love to know as we go through which stories actually meet that or how they score against it. Yeah, I'd never even considered that because I just don't even bother to apply that test to anything prior to like 1980 because I just have no belief that it would probably pass. Didn't really think of it until afterwards. I just made one little note that, you know, there was a nice little interaction. I'd have to go back and look at that again to see if they actually had the conversation without talking about Ian or the doctor. But, you know, it was just kind of a, a little nice thing that I saw where I'm like, all right, like, if we continue to have these little interactions between the two of them, that that's putting them in the right direction. Then throughout the whole thing with the falls, like none of those women are going to really have anything to do. As we talk through the characters, let's talk about the doctor in this very first episode, because he's still very much not the doctor as we would know him later on in the show's run i mean he's incredibly selfish and that's cool that's i like that concept he's on his own journey his own path and he really to be quite honest you could get the feeling that if they happen to stumble into it an, uh, an adventure where barbara and ian just oops oh they tumbled into a ravine oh they're gone forever okay susan you and me let's go you would think he'd be totally be fine with that. He's just like a little kid because he's like, I want to do what I want to do. So I'm going to force that upon you guys. <laughs> his TARDIS, his rules. <laughs> and he will break his toys so they play the games that he wants to. Yeah. I actually think it says a lot about William Hartnell as an actor as well, because he's playing the doctor who's equally doing a great job at acting like he's genuinely concerned over the problems with the TARDIS or the problems in inverted commas he uh looks incredibly pleased with himself when he's looking at the camera just after that conversation after the the tardis breakage like he knows he's done something but during the engines whirring and clearly having problems he looks incredibly uh, he you know he looks incredibly concerned even I don't know. I feel like Ian saw through it. That's just something that has been continuing since the last episode against the uh, unearthly child and all through the episodes of the Daleks is the Ian doctor power struggle. And the show sets that up continually. But to that point about the Doctor being almost villainous, by this stage it's fairly well established that the Doctor is not the hero of this series. He is, you know, the character that's driving it, but Ian is very much being set up as the hero. Especially at the resolution of this series of episodes. Speaking of Ian, one thing I noticed is when they do head down to the city towards the end, and they're standing outside talking about what to do, Ian says, why don't we separate? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. As I watched that, and I was like, and Ian, this is this is why you can't be the leader. You came up with the classic mistake. Yeah, you, you never, ever separate. Especially when everyone's at that point was feeling a little, you know, feeling some radiation sickness. Everyone's feeling kind of poor. Comes up with the idea of like, let's all separate. That's, 
a terrible idea. I realize slasher movies weren't really a thing in the early 60s, or at least, you know, not the classics we think of now. But I was <laughs> honestly left thinking, has this man never seen a horror movie? I would think, like, what does he, what does he expect? Everyone is feeling weak. Everyone's feeling sick. Everyone's separate. So then in a place where they have no idea where they're going, only for someone to pass out somewhere, how do you ever expect to find them? If that happened, it's just, yeah, that was just a really, really bad idea. And I mean, I mean, you could give criticism to the writing for that. I mean, maybe we could give an argument that like, well, they're all have radiation sickness. Maybe he wasn't thinking clearly. I mean, obviously what it was done, it was, it was, it was done in order to provide us, which I, with, with, I think is one of the best sequences in this, in this Dalek serial, Barbara being separated. And then you see like the eye stalk at the very end and you end on that on the very first episode. I thought that was great. So I'll give you that the sequence in and of itself was great. But the fact that we have to have Barbara being the damsel in distress, can we have it be another character? Like Susan? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it goes back to how Barbara is the one who consistently drives the plot forward she's the one realizing things she's the one frequently getting herself into real trouble but as we follow her through the city as she goes deeper and deeper did anyone else pick up on the direction even before we get to the plunger i thought it was absolutely gorgeous i mean the way the camera follows her and the way that it's directed is that she doesn't know it's there there's there's one point when she reaches out to touch something and she puts her hand on the camera lens and I just thought that was so stunningly directed right up until how the camera moves towards her from the Dalek's perspective. And you see that plunger and, and you get that absolutely famous cliffhanger. To me also, is like what struck me more this time than any other time was just the, the music was excellent at building up that suspense. And that's just something you don't really expect from television back in the early 60s. Tristan Carey's score throughout the entire serial is gorgeous and really, really helps move it along and build up tension in in all the right places everything you're saying is true the the music's great the cinematography is great but barbara as a character just loses her nerve what i'm hoping is throughout the season is that she grows because i'm hoping that at least since i'm not getting a female character who while she gets put in these terrible situations she keeps her head and i'm hoping that she gradually gets to that point i think they could have still done it without her kind of completely losing it I just want to see a scene where Ian is so scared he has to go into a corner and curl up in a ball and cry. I think it's fair. I mean, moving into the second episode, The Survivors, keeping on the character of Ian, to me it seemed like he went into into shock after the Daleks paralyzed him. He sits there and the only thing is he says is, my legs, my legs, I can't move, I can't use my legs. And he just repeats that. To me, that's the closest thing we get to Ian struggling with something. He did have a bit of an emotional struggle back in the previous serial when they first exited the TARDIS because he just couldn't really handle his entire worldview had been shifted by it. Yeah, Barbara seemed to be a bit more comfortable with this, with the location switch and the time switch. She took it in stride and he most definitely did not. I was glad that the Daleks, for the most part, down the same. Obviously, there's a little bit of less clarity, I would say, because there was a few times when they were speaking where I was just like, I have no idea what they just said. (laughs) At at least they look and sound the same. I can almost hear what you're not saying. You would expect the Daleks as they are today to come in and immediately start screaming, intruder, intruder, exterminate, (laughs) exterminate. And that's what they don't do here. 
They're rather chatty, aren't they? Yeah, I'm like, they talked a lot. And then obviously there's some new things that they do in the newer series, like the flying and everything. It's not just the static. I think that's also for the sake of the story. As a viewer for the first time watching this and not knowing who they are, Sure, they they do paralyze Ian, but they do say that it is temporary. So you're saying to yourself, well, you know, maybe you're working this out in good faith and you're thinking maybe they're not completely evil. They're just very defensive They're You know, we have stumbled upon their place and started snooping around, you know. And so I think the reason why they're less aggro as they are in the new Who series is because back then they were trying to lead people into think like, well, we don't know. Are they good? Are they bad? And then when we have the introduction of the Thals, you know, maybe we're concerned about a, you know, classic story of the ugly race is what we think is evil and the beautiful race is good, but actually it's the other way around. That's one of the really interesting things. One critic I really like, Elizabeth Sandifer, who writes the really excellent TARDIS Erudatorum blog, comments that the Daleks don't truly become monsters until towards the end of the fourth episode when they just start exterminating the Thals. Up until that point, they're very much they're they're not exactly the most agreeable creatures, but they don't they don't show that desire to just destroy everything that we is that plot turn where they realize that the they want to take the anti radiation drugs in order to be able to survive outside, but then they realize that it's poison and it would kill them, and then actually it is the radiation that they need, and so at that point they're like, well, why are we cooped up in here? I I. I swear, I'm not a I'm not a Dalek apologist. I swear. I had a bit of a problem with that. They jumped to a conclusion, in my opinion, because their physicality is very different from the Thals. But they immediately sort of leapt to the conclusion that we must need radiation to survive, and not well, maybe this medicine just isn't compatible with you. A friend of mine who used to work in the pharmaceuticals business told me that with every new drug, one third of people would have completely acceptable side effects or no side effects a third would have tolerable side effects and a third would have intolerable side effects so to that point i mean maybe daleks are just in that third there there is something i I would like to say and i'm gonna take us down a bit of a tangent so i would like to apologize beforehand that was one problem i kind of had with the idea also it seemed to me that the thals have to develop radiation drugs and they're out on the surface and yet the daleks are below the surface, really away from the radiation, but then they need radiation to survive. That said, that's not my biggest problem with this episode. I can push those aside. What in the hell are the Thals wearing? (laughs) What? This is a planet of irradiated farmers in leather sex pants and Peter Gabriel's old stage outfits. Don't judge them on their fashion. I'm not judging... I am just confused. I am very, very confused. And they even gave <laughs> Susan a nice, like, ball-like coat to give her at the very end as a little going-away present, which she then trips over, but, you know. They gave her a shower curtain cloak, and Barbara got her own leather sex pants, and it was, it was fine, and we've just got this planet of people where the, all of them are all, it's like a Rocky Horror Crew, and they're all playing Rocky. You're going to bring out the sex pants of the Thals? Then let me point out that it is very clear, very clear by the end, at the very end, that Barbara, Ian, and Susan really don't want to leave. They want to fool around with some thals, is all I'm saying. It's pretty clear. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Everything that appears on screen should have a reason for it, to impact the story, convey some information. 
And every time I would see a thal, I'm like, how do we get to this point? How is this band of farmers, which makes me think there's really something more to those farmers only ads that you see on TV every so often. You are not wrong from a female's perspective. And from Barbara's perspective, it wasn't a terrible look. If you take it from that perspective, you know, like I, by the end, I was like, Barbara, I get you. I get why you like this guy. They are farmers now. First, they were warriors. And then two, when you looked at the city that the dogs were from being somewhat futuristic, it's really a hodgepodge of things. You had some more like sciencey type things. You had warriors at one point who then became farmers. Really, it was probably like a leftover of one of those other times. So these were continued from the glam rocker <laughs> era of Scarrow. Yeah. Head cannon accepted. Never know. The glam warrior era. I want to hear the Scarovian <laughs> equivalent of Brian Ferry was. <laughs> Despite the sex pants and the Peter Gabriel outfits, the Thals are so boring. Yeah. And that's something that's kind of creepy that I wanted to point out. We discussed the uh, World War II themes, and everyone is familiar with the Dalek exterminate, racial cleansing, racial purity aspect of the Daleks. Did it creep anyone else out that all the Thals were blonde? Going back to Elizabeth Sandifer, she makes that analogy. She draws a great irony in that Susan describes Aladon as being perfect, particularly when Carol Ann Ford, who played Susan, is Jewish. I didn't know the actress was. Oh. oh. Yeah, so she's seeing this perfectly Aryan man, and she describes him as, as kind of awkward. I was trying to give them the benefit of the doubt with that. I was like, maybe they're doing this in order to complete the metaphor, just to make it clear what the Daleks represent and what they are. But it's awkward. It's very awkward. Honestly, though, it would be a little too on the nose if the Daleks all had blonde hair. I'm now just imagining Boris Johnson-style wigs on top of the Dalek dome. Oh, that would be so glorious. There's got to be a cartoon of that somewhere. Going back to the Survivors episode, as we left Ian, who was paralyzed and freaking out. So I get we've kind of established that Susan is a little bit useless. She continued her screaming in that episode. We kind of all understand that all the other people also see that, I think. But like, she was the best suited to go back to the TARDIS. She's not paralyzed. She's not as sick as everybody else. Just let her go. Yeah, but you know, Ian is the able-bodied male who's set up as the hero. He has to go. Or at least in his head, he does. What was frustrating, I thought about it, was for a little bit, Susan was all like, I need to, I need to go. I need to be one of the people who goes. I need to go. And then when Ian was like, oh my gosh, I can't go. It has to be you. She then starts <laughs> freaking out again. And she's like, I can't do it. And I'm like, you were just arguing to go. She was bluffing. <laughs> So the, the question here is, where's the inconsistency? Is this Terry Nation as the writer, or is this David Whittaker as the script editor? Who's making Susan incredibly inconsistent? Honestly, I, I was distracted by the way they filmed her running to the TARDIS, those up-close shots. It was like, she was like, it's like how you would see a Muppet run. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was glorious. I loved that part. I was going to say, I thought that was very well shot. It felt incredibly claustrophobic, right, yeah. and it really gave the impression to me that she was being followed. And then, of course, she becomes hysterical because Susan. One last thing I actually have to say about episode two of The Survivors is we get our first Hartnell fluff. He, meant, he means to say anti-radiation drugs, and he comes in and he says, anti-radiation gloves, I mean drugs. So I think that's a first. I kind of liked that. 
to me, it just showed how much he was suffering from the radiation. To me, oh. it, it may have been a legitimate screw up, but to me, it worked. It definitely worked, but we really start to get that more and more as we go ahead. With that, we move into episode three. We have Susan encounter Aladon for the first time. And I don't know about everyone else, but I thought that was incredibly well shot. The way he's... Aladon, when we first meet him, he's being shot from below, so he looks incredibly tall. Susan's almost kind of flabbergasted, and, and we realize that the Daleks have been lying about the Thals being disgustingly mutated as she proclaims him to be perfect. That kind of depends on their point of view. To the Daleks, they are disgusting. <laughs> Not to get all Ben Kenobi with it, but it does depend on your point of view. <laughs> It becomes very obvious that the Thals and the Daleks know nothing about each other at this point other than they exist. One of my things is just like, how in the world did they get to this point? You have no idea. The Thals or the Daleks or yes? Yes. Yeah, it seems like the Daleks have been trapped in their city for an awfully long time and don't really know a whole lot about what's going on on the surface. Yeah, it definitely does seem that way. And one of the things I find really interesting here is... Susan immediately trusts Saladon, but she doesn't trust the Daleks. And I was kind of wondering why. Is it because Aladon is incredibly beautiful versus the Daleks who are in machines? Well, I think it's also because the Thals didn't immediately paralyze one of her friends within the first five minutes of meeting them. That might have something to do with it. (laughs) Details, schmeetails. (laughs) Yeah, typically when one group kidnaps you and locks you in a room versus someone who's just like having a conversation yeah there's usually a difference there have we already gotten to the point where um she has realized that it was the thals that left the anti-radiation medication from the first episode yeah they were already acting in a uh, friendly manner before they ever met anyone from the tardis generally they meet people with friendship instead of paralyzing them Uh, i believe that was a chapter in how to make friends and influence people do not paralyze them upon first do not paralyze let me point out it's a doctor who podcast about daleks and we went 53 minutes before anyone did a dalek voice i think that's an accomplishment i was kind of wondering whether you know when the daleks paralyze ian whether they might have actually been meaning to go for susan recognizing that she's the most annoying character You know, actually, if you want to be cold about it, I mean, at that point, they were still uh, sick. So maybe they should have been aiming for her because she was the most able-bodied at that point. I was going all the way to the point where, you know, Susan, not so subtly, destroys that camera. Before we even get to that, so she gets back, and the Daleks are already plotting on how to get at the Thals. They've already decided these guys have got to go. I think we see them as, as far more cunning and savvy than we will later see them because they're talking about giving the the TARDIS crew our heroes a false sense of security they're talking about using them to get to the Thals and you think about modern who and and they would just kill them we got what we wanted we got the drugs exterminate I actually kind of like this version of the Dalek they think more they don't just this is a kinder gentler version of the Daleks (laughs) maybe more sociopathic more let's just say how about more methodical they're not so quick to rush to wanting to exterminate they're more like but wait a minute what's the smartest way to exterminate well and it's also a how much can we get out of them because it's not just a we have the drugs let's kill them it is well if there's something about the drugs that doesn't work how can we use them to get at the salt one thing i found very interesting and and definitely a a gap in the narrative is the Daleks decide to use the TARDIS crew to get to the Thals, right? 
and they have Susan write them a note. At this point, we have no reason to believe that Susan isn't writing in English because we don't know that she speaks anything other than English because all of those concepts we're familiar with around Time Lords and translation matrices in the TARDIS, etc., haven't been established. And yet both the Daleks and the Thals can apparently read modern English. Anyone else think that was kind of odd? Everyone knows English. <laughs> what are you talking mm. about? What do you speak? Speak you, American, speak, damn it. Yeah, exactly. We speak American. <laughs> I don't know what you're speaking. That's just one of those things where you just have to give you know artistic license to allow them to do it. Make I mean, I'm, I'm not going to hold them too hard on that. I mean, I know the show does a much better job with that, but... Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of, is there a way to write, is there a way to write around that? The Daleks are very uh, technologically advanced. Maybe she uses her voice, they record her voice and put it on some sort of disc. And then that is something that, I mean, obviously, if the Thals are able to produce drugs, they must have some amount of technology. Maybe they'd be able to have also some sort of device that can pull that off a disc. You don't need technology to make drugs. That's true. You can have a piece of bread and make, you know. True. True. But what about the metal container that the drugs were in? They found it on the side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think we find that the uh, the Thals and the Daleks, and just generally Scaro in general, follows Susan's passion for metal. Who brought up the, the fake argument and, and Susan's incredibly subtle camera busting? That was me. Because it's Susan. <laughs> She tried to do a clever thing, and it wasn't clever. So one thing I really liked following that was how they figure out how to escape and disrupt the Daleks as a team. The example I would give is the Doctor figures out how they're powered. Barbara then figures out how to disrupt the Ice Stalk. And I forget whether it was Ian or Susan who realizes they can use the cloak to disrupt the power as well. I love two two things. One, I honestly love. One, I sarcastically love. The first is that I love that when the Doctor and Ian open the top of the Dalek, at the end of that scene, you just see like underneath the, the coat, you just see a hand. What do they look like inside that thing? Leaving that for another day. But it was so funny how Ian asked Barbara and Susan to leave the room. Because that's something that their sensitive eyes should not see. Delicate female sensibilities. I have to say, at least he did it in a way that was like not completely insulting. He didn't say like, you should look, you need to go, you shouldn't see this. Instead, he said, hey, go out to the hallway, keep lookout for us while we do this. With that, we, we move into the next episode and we never really see more of that claw, disappointingly. No, no, I think, like I said, I think that's great. Leave it like that. Just, you know, leave the audience, let their imaginations run wild. And I think it's quite a long time before we actually see the inside of a Dalek. Well, I also think if it's bad enough that you can't let Barbara and Susan look at it, are you really just going to be like, but the audience can? Ian and the Doctor got to see the whole thing. We, as the audience, only got to see a claw. The whole thing was shot to protect Julie's sensitive eyes. 55 years on and you're incredibly grateful, I can tell. So their clever plan to escape was not so clever. True, they run straight into some Daleks right off the bat. You know, what, what I love here, though, is for once, Susan actually uses her... I hate to keep using the word hysterical, but there's no other way to describe it. She uses her panic monkey powers. Her panic to everyone else's advantage for once. So she... 
freaks out, Ian can basically say, oh my gosh, let me help, you know, help me get her into the lift. You know, at first, Ian was like, okay, we need to make it look like I'm kind of moving on my own. And then, you know, a little bit later, he's like, oh, wait, I got this. It was just nice to see that he's like, somehow I figured out this alien technology and I can make this thing move. He's the real MVP. He's also the MVP because I'm pretty sure it probably smells. Oh, oh, man. Can you imagine the inside of a Dalek suit? What does that got to smell like? Souffle. <laughs> the interesting thing is, you know, we're, in, we're into episode four. So we've, we've had the first two episodes directed by Christopher Barry. Then we had an episode of Richard Martin. And now we're back to Christopher Barry. And I think this episode is stunningly directed. Once we get Susan into the lift, the tension is just being built up and up and up through the rest of the episode. Goes up until someone drops a piece of sculpture on top of it. (laughs) Which was brilliant. From a historical Who perspective, of 55 years, are we really missing the point that this really isn't the story of Thals versus Daleks? This is the story of Daleks learning to love extermination. And it was a love affair that has lasted for 55 years. It's like they get a taste for it, like (laughs) they can't get enough once they've had that initial bite. I kind of wanted to go back to Ian not being able to get out. The Daleks are cutting through the door. Tristan Carey's score is being ramped up and it sounds gorgeous. Ian, you know, they've got the kind of shaky Dalek as he's trying to get himself out. It feels like the clock is counting down all through it. It's just beautiful. The whole thing. I love that entire sequence. So yeah, we we get to the top and there's that glorious statue. I want more of that. I'm thinking like the Dalek art in those skyscrapers are actually just remnants of a Dalek humanoid period or of something. And then as they put them, as they got moved into machines, for all you who people listening, there's, you're thinking, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm very familiar with Genesis of the Daleks, but I'm looking at it from the perspective of people watching at the time. Point being is that maybe that's implying that there were a Dalek humanoid race and that these higher portions of these skyscrapers where they have this art has just been left there and they've all just basically stayed in those bunker light tunnels for 500 years i would agree with that it all felt very pre-war like the majority of that city was built from the dalek civilization beforehand and everything below ground and all the static electricity and floors and all that came later it's always great to show don't tell and that's like a key rule of film and television where the viewer is able to see something and then just through deductive reasoning be able to pull something together from it only until our TARDIS crew is trying to escape do you see the Daleks even bothering to go up to those higher glass areas and they didn't seem very interested in being up there they were all very much bunkered in yeah that kind of leads to a plot point later or uh, I guess a plot hole later where if they're determined to live in their bunker, why not just irradiate the bunker and let everything else be? But, you know, far be it from us to say, maybe this doesn't make sense. Well, I think it's also from the point of view is that it, it's meant to give the sense of that in the Dalek view, because at that point, once again, it's like we have to look at it from the point of view of what the Daleks were at the time. You can't look at these episodes from what we know of Daleks 55 years later. You have to look at it from only the information they tell you at the time, because that's all that was available. They do reflect a little bit of the, you know, crazed robot that wants to kill all humans kind of thing that comes out of sci-fi from the late 50s for them to get to this concept of everything black and white no gray falls die from radiation 
we thrive in radiation. There can't be both. There can only be one. So therefore, we must radiate everything is my conclusion of solving the plot hole of why couldn't they just stay in the bunker? Which actually leads us neatly into the next plot point of the Doctor and the TARDIS crew rushing to try and warn the Thals as they close in on the Dalek bunker to receive the gifts that the Daleks are apparently going to give them. Damn sexy Thals. With their sex pants and general naivety. And there's flowing blonde hair and perfect features. Ah. I mean, again, that th- this whole sequence, the tension is just beautifully raised all through with the music, with the Daleks hiding in the alcoves, the question of will the Doctor and the TARDIS crew be able to get there in time? And of course, Ian is the one who volunteers to warn them because he's got to be the hero. But he doesn't do a great job of it. No, one thing I noticed is he gets down there and he just stands there he just lets him announce himself instead of saying like whoa never mind he kind of waits for it to happen like oh wait sorry too late (laughs) temesis is standing there talking about the promise of hope and reconciliation and the daleks are hiding in the alcoves waiting to kind of reveal themselves and start killing everyone and ian just stands there good job ian what i enjoy about some of this you know when they're running around everywhere they actually sound tired after they run, which I noticed like in Classic Who, like they sit there, they run for 10 minutes and it's like, oh, we were doing nothing. But in this, they actually like have to take a breather and they're like, you know what? Give me a second. It definitely gives it a better sense of realism. I, I wanted to point out when I remember watching that scene where Ian fails to protect the Thal, who is once, as you were saying, Anthony, talking about hope and peace. I got such a Neville Chamberlain vibe off of that. It felt very on point about, oh, we can we can make peace with these people. It's totally fine. I think it, it goes back to what we said last time around there being an anti-appeasement message underlying this. You know, it, sometimes you have to stand up and fight for the right causes. Some causes are noble. I think it's probably one episode further than what we were discussing or two, where Ian is desperately explaining to them, like, this is not a question of morality. This is purely a question of survival. There's no conversation. There's no discussion that you can have. It's simply, you have to fight. It's hilarious how he gets a thought to fight, which I'm sure Julie appreciated. We'll get back to that in a minute. <laughs> Was anyone else really impressed with the spread that the Daleks put on for the Thals. Given that they just wanted to kill them, they actually put out some fairly nice stuff, which also seemed to include toilet paper. You know, there are some women who would greatly appreciate the toilet paper. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I just found it interesting that, you know, the, the Thals are starving, and, and one of the things the Daleks are actually pretty considerate about putting out is toilet paper. Very thoughtful. Well, they're all very focused on the toilet because they do have a plunger for a hand. It also was probably a little bit cheaper than some of the food products that they could have provided. So they were like, hey, this will look like a lot of stuff. Bearing in mind, it's not even until Capaldi's second season that we find out that the Daleks have sewers. At this stage, we have no idea if they even have need of toilet paper. We get to the end of this episode and it almost starts feeling like we're leaving Scaro. You would think, but someone made a horrible, horrible mistake. Oh, Ian. One of the things I find interesting, and it it kind of goes back to our conversation last time around whether that was one or two serials. To me, this almost feels like two as well, in that you have the initial four episodes with a very concise story that could be very neatly wrapped up at the end. 
with another three episodes tacked on afterwards to rectify a mistake. I would say that I do like that cliffhanger, but I, I just don't think that the following three episodes need three. The whole Barbara and Ian and going through the cave system with the falls. The expedition yeah, that's episode? just kind of filler. It really the is the adventure serial portion. Yeah. I do I, I don't don't get me wrong, I really love that shot of of that shot of like the tunnel from like a side cut point of view where you see them all in it. I, I think that shot's hilarious and really interesting and fun, but uh unnecessary. I totally have my first comment on that episode was totally a filler episode. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I mean we get everything we need from when we get when we get our crew back to the Thal camp, all of them together actually meeting the Thals, having a discussion with the Thals, and then can we please get to what motivates what we can get a Thal to fight about? But then when we have that, you know, that expedition, unnecessary. Do we want to talk about how to get the Thals to fight? I know how you do it. You're saying, I'm taking your woman. That's basically how you do it. And her shower uh, curtain mod cloak. It's mine now. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, though. I mean, if I had ever met Dione in person, I would be convinced that she was the most boring, one-dimensional woman I had ever met. So I really wouldn't mind if someone took her off to the Daleks. When Ian is, like, leading her away, she just kind of looks back like, I guess this is happening now. I, I'm not going to do anything <laughs> about this. <laughs> Obviously, I can't have a say in it. Well, this is my life now. Basically. Oh, well. For a pacifist, though, he you would think that his first attempt at a punch would be a complete whiff, but he, he did a good job. You know, I, I, I almost wonder if that giant sigh from Julie might just be enough to sum up her feelings on this entire scene. Go on, Julie, I know you have more to say. I really don't. <laughs> I really, really don't. Uh, it's awful, isn't it? I mean, it really is. It's, it's so early 60s, male chauvinism. It, looking back on it in 2018, it's painful. It's less bothersome that that is what motivates a pacifist to fight. It's more bothersome that the female character is wandering off with like no agency and it's just like like i said i guess this is happening to me now i don't know i'm just being led around i i don't really really have much of a say in it that's that's the main problem having having the motivation is cliched but not terrible i mean everyone loves when you know everyone loves when marty mcfly's father you know gets motivated to fight in order to protect the woman that he loves it's an instance of let me stand around and wait for a man to intervene. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's that's the problem with it. <sighs> Jane Austen would be so upset. <laughs> I'm amazed that Barbara didn't pipe up and just say, "Woman, what are you doing?" I wonder how would Barbara would have thought about Ian's methods there. I'm surprised Susan didn't scream. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we fighting? <laughs> What's going on? I'm pretty sure I blocked some of this out because I really just didn't want. Like I just couldn't. I don't. I don't like talking about it because it's just like sixties, man. As I said, I don't think in 2018 this is justifiable to anyone, or at least those who who it would be justifiable to would probably find themselves on the the fringes of society. It's 1964. Just gotta roll with it. So when can we get to discussing when Barbara and Ian and a bunch of Thals play the game of Pitfall uh, as they? go in and try to infiltrate the Dalek city. I think it was Don you mentioned 
adventure serials, does it remind anyone of anything else? I mean, I have a very specific sci-fi serial in mind that this really gives me a similar vibe to. And that would be those kind of 1930s Flash Gordon serials where it's, oh, we must overcome this. And oh, no, there's something else in our way. And eventually we will get there and defeat Ming the Merciless. You know, it, it, to me, it feels very much like that. Yeah, I can see that. It's definitely a classic old film serial kind of feel to it. It's hard to give a sense of like, action and adventure with limited budget, limited special effects of the time period. The swamp more than the cave to me. I thought that the creature in the swamp, quite good. The cave, though, could live without. This might just be coming back to my opinion that black and white really does hide all manner of sins. So we are going through the caves, and at the same time, though, Susan and the Doctor going straight to the city. I love what Susan and the Doctor are doing, particularly when he... There's another wonderful Billy Hartnell fluff where he says, we mustn't diddle about. That has some interesting connotations. <laughs> <laughs> and then once he's broken the Daleks' machinery, he s stands there and basks in his own glory, and then they just get captured. <laughs> Do you guys remember what I was saying last week about that early character motivation they had in that first draft where they were talking about the Doctor would be very much against technological progress and looking for his perfect time where he could then stop progress and just live there forever? Almost felt like that with the amount of joy he took in smashing up that machinery. Well, I think it was all, it was, it's less of the smashing of the machinery and more he just really enjoyed the fact that just using... A simple key and keychain was enough to completely destroy their plans. Though I have to imagine, I think, wasn't Susan at the same time trying, trying to, to leave? leave? <laughs> yeah. So we actually yeah, have. Susan was actually being the smart yeah. one there. Yeah. Well, she knows her grandfather. Yeah. I think we should just, you know, appreciate the fact that Susan was written sensibly for once. It happens. It does happen. On the rare occasion. It happens. Like Julie was saying, it's very, um, it's, it's almost schizophrenic in a way, in which at times it's just, oh, okay, she seems level-headed and normal, and then for no reason at all, like, when she was totally fine, she completely flips out. Again, the way the way that I look at it with more with Susan, but kind of both with Susan and, Susan and Barbara, is they pretty much, for the most part, write them in the stereotypical early 60s type fashion, but then they're like, but you know what? We're going to give them a few moments so that they look good for a few moments, but then the rest of the time, just how we would normally do things. I don't want to accuse this show of doing this, but I'm from my memory, I'm thinking that it did have elements of that where female characters were portrayed at one moment being very level-headed and, the and then completely erratic the next. I think the original Star Trek series from, I think, was that 66 also had that issue in which a female character would also have that problem. Science fiction shows predominantly written by men. I don't think we have, I, I do not know who the first female writer was on who, or who was the first female writer on Star Trek. I think that's just a, something that both of those shows dealt with, is that these writers wanting to show women in positive light, but then also falling back on old habits, I guess. I know that Star Trek did have a female primary writer, uh, DC Fontana. On oh, the original series? Yes, yeah, the original series. Oh, really? Oh, man. Yeah. I'm going to look I'm gonna look in and see which episode she wrote. It would be quite a long time before we got a female writer on Doctor Who. At this point, we do have 
Verity Lambert behind the scenes, really driving the show. But I'm trying to find out when Doctor Who got its first female written script. I believe it was 1983 with Enlightenment. So almost 20 years later. So infamous chasm jump. We'll first say Barbara is wearing terrible shoes for all of this. She's wearing sandals. Completely impractical. Sandals and the sex leggings by this stage. Although I have to say, she jumped it pretty well. That's actually, you know, we discussed earlier the fact that both Ian and Barbara would be hungry and we've taken care of their food, but they're still wearing the same clothes. And it's been, they've been, you know, captured by cavemen and now they've been captured by Daleks. They, they've got to not be smelling good. I did find it interesting. Barbara makes it across the chasm, okay, but as she's trying to go round that little corner, she gets it completely wrong and has to be instructed by Ian. I mean, I, I was sitting there thinking, wow, did that just happen? And then amidst all of this, we have Antidus freaking out, going, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. Ganatus, you know, of this incredibly peaceful race, his first reaction is, you know what? I'm going to punch him. Well, that's what you got to do with damn hippies that can't handle war. He's just had enough pacifism. He's yeah. done. <laughs> He's smacking people around. He's going full Patton. <laughs> uh, it's just really inconsistent characterization. And from that point on, I mean, it, it really feels like Antidus has a death wish. He has zero interest in facing the Daleks. And when it comes to his turn to jump the chasm, he feels like he's not going to make it. He doesn't want to make it. And and the way the music builds up, it becomes incredibly obvious to us that he's not going to make it. He just wants to go back to his simple farming ways. Yeah. But not making it over the chasm doesn't help that. (laughs) (laughs) And and what I love is about the way this is directed, and I I don't think this is deliberate, it just happens to be a quirk of of the mechanics of filming it, but he goes to jump, and Ian goes to catch him, but it almost looks like Ian pushes him. (laughs) (laughs) Screw you, dude, you didn't want to come, you're going down the chasm. This is the beginning of a large conspiracy and a conspiracy theory where we discuss how Ian travels to the Doctor to go to strange planets all around the universe in order to satiate his bloodlust to kill aliens. So Ian is actually a serial killer. Absolutely. Is that our working theory? I like this. Yeah, we'll see how it develops over this. I'm excited on that. Me too. (laughs) Speaking of alien killing, by the time we get into the final episode, the Doctor kind of starts losing his shit at the Daleks and said and describes it as this senseless evil killing and I was sitting there just thinking yeah but this is the the guy who was quite happy to cave a caveman's skull in the week or a month or two beforehand remember the doctor was saying that these people will turn on you on a dime which they did you know you can't trust them we just need to get back he's flustered he didn't expect to have human companions. You know, his granddaughter's flipping out. He's, you know, he's not ready to deal with this. He just wants this to be over. He just wants to get back and get back to some sort of normalcy. At this point, when he sees, you know, a completely outside situation, and he sees the Daleks, and the Daleks are just, you know, so he feels like he has a proper motivation for killing the caveman. While with the Daleks, it's just like, hey, you know, they need non-radiation. We need radiation. There's only one planet. Well, there you go. Let's knock him out. To him, I think that's like, okay, now that's too much. That's that's what I think it is. Uh, it's not necessarily the best 
philosophical defense of <laughs> the doctor, but it's maybe some sort of rationalization for him. It goes back to what we were saying, that the, the Doctor is not quite the Doctor by this point. Which makes sense, because, I mean, under canon, these are Ian and Barbara, the first human beings to travel with him. So he is learning, perhaps, human beings are rubbing off on the Doctor. The Doctor, at this point, starts bargaining with them as well. I mean, it ultimately backfires magnificently, because they just the Daleks are just like, eh, no, we'll just go do that on our own once we've killed you. And which is great because we, you know, it's always very annoying for villains to buy into some sort of ruse by our heroes like that only, you know, when they don't need to at all. It's a classic, you know, fault of all Bond villains. Yeah, it, it avoids that trope really nicely. So one thing I found quite funny and almost ironic about this is the Thals arrive in the Dalek city just as the final countdown is beginning, right? So we had the Thals who wanted to do nothing and just run away. In the meantime, the Daleks are planning to irradiate the atmosphere. And Ian convinces them to come and fight, and then everyone arrives just in time to stop them. It's a series of some pretty impressive coincidences. That's just the sake of drama trying to create suspense with timing. Maybe I should start grading fight scenes from now on for Doctor Who serials on the first season. This one is a little bit better. And I also found it slightly interesting when the last Dalek dies or runs out of power, which I guess would destroy his life support system and then kill him. His eye stalk points straight up. I thought that was an interesting, um, you know, act. And, you know, I guess you would argue for a person in that outfit would be acting, but acting choice. I thought was interesting. I think it works. I don't. Rem- I don't think we have that with Daleks. And I think when they die, they their stocks just kind of, you know, the light at the end turns off and they kind of droop. So, in um, running through corridors by Rob Sherman and Toby Haydock, Rob Sherman makes the observation that the Dalek eye stalk going up at right angles is almost as if the Dalek with its dying instinct is flipping off the Doctor, which (laughs) I absolutely love that idea. So in that final fight scene, there's a Thal who I have named because I don't think he was ever given an on-screen name as Hero Rope Thal. He descends (laughs) from the ceiling on a rope. And I was incredibly disappointed that as soon as he gets off of the rope, he's promptly killed by a Dalek. I I was really rooting for that guy to do big things. (laughs) I was impressed by the thaw that got the uh, shot in the abdomen and then, like, staggered forward and still kept fighting. I don't think I've ever... I don't recall anyone ever taking a shot from a Dalek and, like, being able to survive it, for even for a limited amount of time. With the Daleks defeated, Fluid Link recovered... And the Thal's safe, and we head back into the TARDIS with Barbara and Ganatus and their extremely deep romance with a tearful goodbye, almost. And I just talk about how disappointed I am, but the Thal women, all they do is just carry your own food for all the men. They're just like, oh, hey, look at this battle you just fought. No, no, no. 
They should have women fighting. Did any of the Thal women have a character name? Yes, the lead one was Dione. Ah, that's right. Okay, thank you. She's clearly being lined up as a love interest for Aladon because she gets incredibly jealous of Susan. Was Ian eyeing her or someone, another Lady Thal before he left? Because I definitely got that sense that our TARDIS crew was really creeping on the Thals. So I, I actually end my note on this story with Ganatus and Barbara sitting in a tree. I was slightly surprised to see Barbara, after he kisses her, kissing him back right before she leaves. I thought she was just going to take that and be like, okay, thank you. But it shows that she really had an interest in him. You know, with that, immediately after, they get into the TARDIS and it immediately goes wrong and we're left with another cliffhanger. So I think this is a... Uh... A good time for us maybe to think about giving an overall vote on this story. For our first time listeners, if, if there are any of you out there, uh, each week we vote out of 10 and the unit of voting is normally something from the story. Originally we were going to use fluid links as this one, but I think it would be far more appropriate to vote out uh, how many plunges out of 10 this week. Riley. It would have been a 9 out of 10 if we did not have those filler episodes. But it's a classic. You have to watch this. It's the first episode of the Daleks. You have to watch it. And it's good. It really is good. And it's enjoyable. 8 out of 10 plungers. Julie? I'm actually not going with plungers. Um, basically, just because of the conversations that we've had. So I'm going to be voting by leather pants. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> And I am going to give it a 7 out of 10 leather pants. Um, partially the filler, partially the female stance. Count for that. Uh, so for, for women, it would be a 3 out of 10. Mr. Don. Well, I was originally trying to convert my vote from leather sex pants into plungers. Now I realize I don't have to. Aside from the filler... And my own issues with some of the logic in the story. I really enjoyed it. It's the first appearance of the Daleks. It's good stuff. I would give it 8 out of 10. I think I'm in alignment with, with Don and, and Riley in, in giving this one 8 plunges out of 10. Um, I think, Riley, you summed up my thoughts pretty well in that this introduces us to what is potentially the most iconic villain's they're not fully formed yet, but that almost makes them more interesting to me. There's some really good direction in this, some fantastic tension. To me, this this one is the first classic we have, so I'm I'm fully on board with the eight plungers out of ten. Thank you for listening in. We have been the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. Please join us next time round when we will be talking about The Edge of Destruction, a significantly shorter story, so you won't have to listen to us drone on for nearly as long. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Philippek, Riley Schreck, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Sex, Pants, and Naivety, was recorded on Wednesday, the 28th of November, 2018. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. And remember, if you can't persuade a dude in leather sex pants round to your point of view, just insult his masculinity.